your host, Bill Real. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to be back with you. We've got Brittany Hartley and Anthony Miller. Here we go. It's round three. Um, we're going to have a conversation uh, today about the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven factors of awakening. Anthony, Anthony, this is your third trip here. So let me start with Brittany. Brittany, uh, you're back for the second time. Um, give us a brief kind of intro to you. And then I think folks will have a good enough feel for Anthony at this point since he's been on two before. Um, and we'll just kind of get going here on some conversation. But Britt, uh, if you don't mind. My name is Brittany Hartley. I live in Boise, Idaho. Um, I have a master's degree in the future of American religion, and I currently am in a spiritual director program. I've known Bill for about a decade now, and we just love any chance we have to get together and talk about uh, conversations like this. So just excited to be here. All right. So let's jump into a conversation. So the part three here, uh, Jack Cornfield. Presentation number three, seven factors of enlightenment or awakening. And um, is there one of these that maybe stands out to you guys? I can kind of delete them as we're talking about them. Is there one that maybe stands out to you guys that you you want to start off with? Otherwise, I'll just jump into the first one I've got listed. I mean, just all encompassing to me as he, he goes through in this session and he talks about and, and he gives different examples of these things. Um, what continually came to mind are... Um, when I've engaged in people in uh, faith transition communities, as well as active believing members of the faith tradition that I came from, and uh, people that are dealing with difficulty, dealing with issues of perfectionism, dealing with issues of an experience of pain from differentiation of belief and spiritual practices and so forth, when they make comments about um, the progress that I've made and they, and, and they want to understand and learn more about these kinds of things. This session seemed to be, uh, something that I would want to share with them because, um, these practices helped me in my own journey to be able to sit with a greater, increase my capacity, I suppose, because I'm, I'm certainly not perfect in this, in sit, sitting with a higher degree of differentiation, of engaging with people that have very disparate beliefs about uh, values and about politics and about faith and spiritual practices and so forth. And, and so there isn't necessarily one that stands out to me, but they're kind of all-encompassing that these are practices that provide us a greater sense of gratitude and peace um, and presence when we're engaging with others. Yeah. For me, he's, so he starts with mindful awareness as the, as the first one he goes with. And I do think that that is, if, if I'm looking at the list, that would be the place that I would start also, just in the sense that when I'm looking at, you know, my brain is always looking at comparative religions and um, I'm always interested in like first principles because it kind of sets out where this religion is going. And and so this idea of the first principle here, the thing that we're going to start with is mindful awareness is really this cue that this journey that we're going to go on begins with looking inside, right? Whereas other religions may say the first principle is 
faith on the Lord Jesus Christ or faith on this or, or uh, there's only God, there's no God, but Allah, you know, there's, there's directions that you can go for this journey. And so I, I think when you start with mindful awareness, this is our cue that this particular path, this particular enlightenment path really focuses inward um, and really better than any religious tradition that I know of. And so I think that that's a great place to start because it kind of sets the tone of where we're going I and love that's it. inward. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do love that pointing inward and these Eastern religions have a lot more time behind them. And I think there's some realization that the truth is for any one of us to make a difference in our life, it is to look inward. Um, all right. So let's start with meditation. This idea of being present, being mindful, being aware that you're in this moment right now. Um, any thoughts on mindfulness um, from either one of you? I'll go. So for me, it's, um, it's, it's a tiny little shift, but it's a shift that really does change your life. And for humans, we're so emotional. We're, we're all on this emotional roller coaster every day. And I think it's Sam Harris who says that, that being able to get off the roller coaster of your own emotional upheaval is really a human superpower. It enables you to do things that, um, a lot of us really struggle with it. It is the human superpower is being able to, it's the, it's the space between I'm angry and noticing that you have sensations of anger that have come up in your body. That's a little shift. You're both in both situations. You're going to have sensations of heat in your body, but the difference between I'm angry and I'm going to react in an angry way because I am identifying with this anger and I'm mad at you for making me angry. The difference between that and sitting and noticing, wow, I have some heat coming up in my body and I'm going to choose what I want to do with that really is, um, it, it's a tiny shift, but it, it is such, uh, a way to change your life. And it is the human superpower when you can learn how to do that. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you that this idea of being mindful of your body, of your breath, of the aches and pains of your body systems doing their work. Um, as you're pointing out, like when some kind of emotion comes up, it's felt, we feel it somewhere and the chance to be present with it and notice it, it, it give, again, as I think we said this last week that it just gives you the pause that allows you to respond rather than react. If you immediately feel something and jump into like, like you're saying, Brit, I'm angry. Here it is. Rather than going like, oh, there's a sensation. What do I want to do with that? And being intentional about how you show up in response to that feeling that arises within you. Uh, my wife and I are constantly having conversations about these disturbances now and how these disturbances are internal to us who are feeling them. And, are, and they really say absolutely nothing necessarily about the outside world. Rather, it's our own experience, our own um, life journey, our own predispositions, our own expectations of what the world needs to look like that have these disturbances showing up and we get to handle them completely differently now. Yeah. And I want to talk about a little bit about perfectionism and the present moment. So I put in a lot of work over the years participating in a, in a program for entrepreneurs called the strategic coach. And, and one of the things that was born out of that was, uh, this principle or recognition that 
you have very high achievers or you have people that are accomplishing quite a bit and some are very happy and have a sense of presence with their achievement and other people might be achieving the exact same things but the present moment is very painful experience and it feels like a failure and the principle that i would share is the difference between uh, the two experiences has nothing to do what with what people are accomplishing it has with to do with how people measure themselves. So people who have a natural tendency for perfectionism, what they tend to do is they tend to measure their progress against ideals that aren't necessarily achievable things. And so no matter what they accomplish in life, they could be an Olympic gold medalist and feel like a failure because they didn't... uh, get two gold medals, or if they got two, they didn't get three, or if they got three, they didn't establish world records in what they did, because they're measuring their accomplishment against an ideal that's a mental construct that was never meant to be something that people accomplish, where other people have a natural tendency to measure their progress from where they started. So maybe they have an ideal to be a good father and and to be a good provider. And so they set a goal to graduate from college. And then when they graduate from college, some of them might have a natural tendency to measure that against being a great father, which is ambiguous, and they could have always done better, and it might feel like a failure with perfectionism, where other people might have a natural tendency to turn back and measure backwards in time where they started and all the work that they put in, and they, they have a sense of satisfaction for the progress that they've made, and they get to benefit from their accomplishments, which gives them new and more energy to set new and more stretching goals to move forward, where the perfectionist sets new and more stretching goals because they privately feel like a failure in the present. And so they think, well, maybe if I accomplish this next thing, then maybe it'll be okay. And then, of course, no matter what they accomplish, it'll feel like a failure. The reason that I bring this up is for people that come from a system that is focused on perfectionism, or if they themselves are naturally perfectionists, and they come from a system that enhances that sense of experience, the present moment is a very painful experience, because the present moment feels like a failure. And so that person who is living with that is constantly anchored by this sense of of regret or pain about the past, so they're stuck in the past and it's not letting them move forward, or they can't live in the present because it's a painful thing and they're constantly talking about the future and what is the next thing that's going to give them some sense of peace in their life and, and it makes it very difficult for them to be in the present. So there's a lot of dynamics in here. That's what came to my mind is, is really life and the beauty and really what makes life worthwhile and living really is this present moment. It's being able to experience the awe and the gratitude and, and the richness of the experience of the present. And it often takes quite a bit of work for a person to be able to live in that present moment and not have it feel like a failure. So that's what I it, wanted to share about. Yeah, that. it's it's good that you're pointing out that some people really have trouble being positive in the present and that here we are, Buddhism is directing us to always kind of be present, to let go of past and future and to be concerned with what's in front of you right here and to just acknowledge that it just is. Like some of it hurts, some of it feels good, some of it's boring, some of it's exciting, um but it just is right here in this moment right in front of you. Um, so I, I appreciate that kind of direction that 
that there are some folks who struggle with that negativity in the moment. Um, any other thoughts here on mindfulness? I, I don't know how to get, if, if someone hasn't meditated, if someone hasn't spent much time really thinking about what it means to be present, to be aware of what's going on with you uh, and your body and the things unfolding in front of you. I don't know how to point somebody to what that looks like other than my two senses to start a meditation practice and to at least get a few rounds of meditation in and then realize the difference it makes in your body uh, and in your mind when that exercise is over. Any thoughts there on how to get someone started? And Yeah, I think it's also... Yeah, I think it's also important to note that when you first start a practice of sitting with yourself, um, it's going to feel like torture and you're going to feel like uh, you're just going to feel really wiggly and itchy and your mind's all over the place. And so some people think, oh, you know, I've tried that, but, you know, my mind's just too all over the place to be able to do meditation. And I think some people go in with the idea that meditating is sitting in this peaceful place where your mind is blank. And so when they feel, so when they try meditation and it's not like that, they feel like they're failing it and they give up. And so it was really important at the beginning of my practice for someone to say that if this is, if, if this exercise is like a bicep curl, the curl happens when you notice that your mind has gone off somewhere uh, in a fantasy, in a worry, in the past, in the future, and when you pull your mind back to your breath, that moment of pulling, that's the curl. That's the bicep curl. That's You're doing it right when you do that moment. And so once you get used to the idea that you are going to kind of feel all over the place and you're going to pull yourself back, that's the strengthening movement. And so then you don't have to feel like you just have to sit in this, you know, peaceful state of no thought. Um, People who have meditated even for a long time will sometimes meditate for an hour and be like, I was just all over the place today. And so if you expect that going in and return yourself back to the breath, that's the strengthening moment. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I've heard it put in a little different way, which is um, your brain is always doing all this mind chatter. And it's in those brief moments where you do have a little bit of a blankness to your mind, um, which is that moment of pulling back, right? Like you're, okay, let me go back to what's going on right here, right now, observing it. And so you don't have a thought for a, a millisecond. And it's that moment in between thoughts that is kind of where the magic is happening. Good. I love that. Um, there uh, interrupt. No, so there, there are a couple of really fantastic apps like Sam Harris has the waking up app mm-hmm. uh, that you can get on your phone. Um, there's the calm app for people starting out. A guided meditation can be very helpful, whether you're with a group or something like that. Um, uh, so there's several tools that people can use to, to, to get started on meditation and contemplative practices that bring you into the present moment. And mindfulness really is an important first piece of all of this. It, I don't think you really get very far if you don't have some sort of practice to be mindful. Um, to be honest, I don't meditate in the formal way. I've meditated that way maybe two or three times. Um, what I tend to do is just sit still and kind of watch the world, uh, watch humans in front of me doing their thing or, or um sitting kind of in a, either a group or just watching kind of nature happening and just observe and try not to tell a story about it 
and that's kind of one of the ways that I, I kind of try to get into that space. And it, it seems to work for me, but then again, I don't think I'm as far ahead as others. So maybe it's not working well enough. Um, I do think, I do think sometimes we have to take, there's a little bit of ego involved when you feel like, oh, well, I can't sit cross-legged, you know, like we're as Western people, we don't often sit in that position. And so when you go to some meditation course or you see a meditation teacher and they can sit up straight for hours with cross-legged and you're just like, well, I can't do this. You know, if you can take your ego out of that, um, out of that situation. And like you said, Bill, it's, it's not the pose. It's not the way you're sitting. It's not where you've got your cushion. And it's not, if you're wearing Lululemon, you have to take you know, those are all ego things that are on top of meditation, but actually just you can do it when you're conversing with a person. Can you fully listen to that person? You can do that on a walk. You can do that washing dishes and just feel the heat on your hands and just notice what that feels like. Um, so you really can do it anywhere. And I really encourage um, people who feel overwhelmed by the kind of look of meditation to kind of let that go so that you can just experience it truly anywhere. The other one I wanted to talk about was the next one here is curiosity or investigation. And this is also, a, a I don't know, maybe they're all big, but this was a big one for me. I, I look at you two and I see curious people who want to understand how the world works. Uh, Jana's the same way. Um, I, I see that in myself. Like I want to know how everything goes together I want to take things apart. I want to investigate the world. I want to investigate other humans. I want to investigate um, information and education. Um, your thoughts, you two, on this attitude of curiosity, which I think is one of the key ingredients, again, maybe with all the rest of these, but one of the key ingredients for growth. I just love this idea, especially in this age where we feel... Uh you know, in our, in Gen Z, especially where you do have the option to be constantly entertained, right? You have the option to have a TV and a phone with you while you're working, while you're, I mean, every moment of the day, you could be entertained. We have that option. And you can notice people that, um, or notice in myself too, that if you're ever bored and really the true cure for boredom in this life is, is curiosity. And being humble enough to go in with a beginner's mind and just say, I am open to hearing this story. I'm open to trying to understand this thing. I'm open to trying to understand what's going on inside of me right now. And, and this idea that if you're bored, you're not paying attention because there's just so much mystery and beauty and awe and things to learn about and amazing things in life that we could never possibly learn in one lifetime. And uh, when you open yourself up to that, it's, it's the cure for boredom. It's the cure for the need to be constantly entertained, which is something that um, our world really needs right now. Hmm. Yeah. Anything, Anthony? Yeah. I would, I would certainly say it makes sense that one of the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment is to approach things with investigation of the nature of reality with a sense of curiosity that that opens a person up to be able to discover and grow and learn new things uh, about how things work as well as about themselves. You know, a, a, a truly curious um, point of view would, if I was sitting somewhere and I was bored, 
a, a curious approach would be to seek to understand what's the nature of that sense of boredom. Where did that come from? And and get curious about it. Um, it'd be curious about the experience of the other individuals around me or the animals or nature or whatnot. So yeah, it absolutely makes sense that it would be one of the seven factors. Even as you mentioned, Britt, like we watch TV shows and we entertain ourselves and we kind of turn our brain off. Even watching television anymore tends to be kind of this practice of curiosity for me. When I when I see in a TV show people who are getting themselves in trouble, they're getting ready to get caught by the police and, and go to jail or prison, they're in the middle of really bad behavior, I suddenly, where I never would have done this before, I suddenly am uh, examining how they got there. I'm examining what led to that moment, and I see that really even a TV show character who's on the borderline of getting in trouble or, or is in trouble, they're really just me with just different choices in front of them. And you make, you make a choice at some point in your life and it leads to other choices and consequences. And you realize like every human being, that expression could have been me if I was under a different set of circumstances and um, lots of little things, death, death in television or movies is now a meditation for me when I see those things happen. Um, when I see people treat each other and act healthy or unhealthy, my brain now picks up on those things as I'm being mindful of what's going on in front of me in that moment. And I, I suddenly in the last three or four years have really become keen to how we humans react and respond, whether it's in real life or whether it's even on a entertaining TV show. Um, and it all goes back to that idea of being curious about why we do what we do and why the world does what it does. And my thoughts of having control and my limitations of really not having it. Um, anyway, um, anything else there before we move to the next one? I think it's just also worthy to note that um, curiosity. So I think he, he frames it as investigation is he framed it as seeing the world clearly. And a lot of that is also going to be letting go and unlearning versus learning. I have been studying God professionally for 20 years. And I feel like I know less about the concept of God than when I started. Right. And it's this, it's this concept of also, you're not just learning, you're not just tinkering and learning new words and learning how the world works. Although that is interesting. You're also unlearning, right? You're unlearning biases, you're unlearning your perceptions, you're unlearning. Um, and so when you lead with curiosity um, versus I know the answer to this thing, um, it really keeps you from being unstuck. And I think we all know people in our lives who have so clung to a religious, religious ideology, a political ideology, whatever they got stuck on, where they are so stuck and they've lost curiosity because they're just kind of stuck on like, this has to be the thing that the per you can see in their life, the progression kind of stopped because now they're clinging to this, whatever they clung to. And so, um, working with curiosity and especially with other people's points of view um, really keeps you from getting in those stuck places where you're going to wrap your whole identity around some truth that probably isn't going to be true 500 years from now. Right. So I, I think it's just always, it's a way that really keeps you from getting stuck as a person. Yeah. In fact, I don't remember if it's Jack that says this or if I read this somewhere else during the prep for this, but it says once mindfulness is established, 
The practitioner can engage in investigation and clearly see the details of the present moment. You are much more picking up on the details, and which is something you said at the beginning of that. And then there's this recognition that not only are you learning things, but you're also deconstructing things too. Like my family taught me some degree of prejudice and bigotry and judgment. And, and that was passed down to them. So it's not their fault necessarily. And now I come into these moments where I'm unlearning some of that unhealthiness by watching the fact that, again, maybe just as I pointed out, that another person in front of me really is me under a different set of circumstances. So whether their skin color is different, whether they come from a different country, whether they speak a different language, whether they have a different skill or flaw, they really are just human in the same way I am. And, and it helps me to pick up on the idea that the things that make somebody different, there are ways in which I can now see that they're doing what I do. It just looks different, but it's but it's a very similar human trait or response or behavior or reaction. And so I may go like, oh, they they do that differently than me. But the reason they do it, what their what their brain is trying to accomplish, is often something very relatable inside of me as well. So maybe they deflect or cast blame, and maybe I get defensive in some other way, but, but we're both being defensive. And so that curiosity helps us kind of see things that are different, but maybe also how those things are also the same as well. Um, anyway. Um, okay. So next let's talk about energy. Um, he speaks of, of this kind of energy or determination or effort. So it's not just curiosity. It's now moving forward in the world and doing something with, with that curiosity and that mindfulness. Uh, any thoughts on the energy component or determination on your guys' end? So on Wikipedia, if you look up the Buddhist term, I think it's vir- virya or something like that. It, it says it's commonly translated as energy, diligence, enthusiasm, or effort. It can be defined as an attitude of gladly engaging in wholesome activities, and it functions to cause one to accomplish wholesome and virtuous actions. That sounds like a a scriptural passage uh, that was one that I really liked about that uh, the premise is that it was an unwise and slothful servant that needed to be commanded in all things, but that we should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and be agents of our own, you know, free will or something like that. And, and certainly that would be a factor of awakening or enlightenment is, is to, with enthusiasm and with gratitude, to seek out to gladly engage in good things and acts of virtuous and uh, moral goodness to, to be part of those things. Love it. For me, he used the he used the example of riding a bike, and I just really like that because I also have had to work on some inner perfectionism tendencies. Um, and so I love this idea that when you're riding a bike, you're never perfectly balanced. Um, you're always moving back and forth into balance. You're pulling back this way. You're pulling back the other way. Um, I know that I made the note here, energy means applying oneself to the task at hand while being attentive to the details one has investigated. I also remember the bike part from Jack's talking and there's this constant calibration, right? There's this constant adapting to what is going on in, in that moment. I think sometimes too, like in a conversation with a, with a friend or someone, uh, you're sitting in a conversation and you're constantly worried about what you're going to say next and you're missing on what they're, what they're talking about in that moment. And I think sometimes this active 
moving forward is, is in, as she's talking about the bike is this constant. And again, it's being aware of the present moment and not getting lost in what you want to do or want to say, or want to share, but constantly taking in the world as it is and paying attention to it. Um, anyway, any other thoughts here on energy? Anthony? Um, I mean, it helps us to not get stuck basically. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. 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 Hopefully Britt comes back on here in just a moment, but let's, uh, let's move uh, on and we'll come back to energy. If she gets on here, and wants to kind of finish that thought. Um, one here is joy. Uh, joy says here, joy comes from the application of mindful energy. Finding joy in the practice is essential for maintaining a steady practice. Uh, who wants to persist in a joyless endeavor? Joy is one of the four immeasurables, another list of virtues essential to awakening. I remember when Jack was talking about how meditation was very much like his job working in a factory on an assembly line and how the assembly line job was mundane. He was just putting a widget to another part and moving it along, but how it was very much like meditation, how he just could get lost in the being present of doing that act. Um, and I think sometimes doing mundane tasks can seem non-joyful, but we can find joy in everything. Um, thoughts, Anthony, on this idea of joy? Yeah, I mean, he talks about rapture too and joy. When I think of joy, I think of an experience of, of gratitude um, and engagement and connection uh, to the moment. And uh, he gives some different examples of that. He, he in one a story that he tells uh, of sitting with his father who's dying and spending time with him and and what a treasured experience that mm, was yeah. for him to spend that time together um when i think of joy and connection i i think of opportunities to to sit with people in their present moment and whether their moment is a period of mourning or grief or whether it is an experience of gratitude and celebration. It's that sense of connection and gratitude um, for being able to share those moments together. When he talks about his, his dad and sitting with his father kind of on his dad's last kind of bit here on this earth, um, somewhere along the way, Jack makes the comment that we're all going to feel pain, but feeling pain doesn't mean we need to suffer. And I'm still trying to kind of sort that out because I think some moments can be so painful that it feels as though there's little choice but to suffer. And I think there are extreme situations where people are in really messed up experiences. They've been, you know, let's say a kid being kidnapped. Let's go to the extreme. And there are things that happen to human beings where you think there's just no choice but to suffer. And and here he talks about his dad kind of being on his deathbed and his dad is so his dad is so worried about passing on and what death is that he he cannot be present. He's just worried about what's coming. And here's Jack just sitting with him and being present and taking in these final days or weeks with his father and finding some sort of joy and gratitude in that shared experience, right? Yeah, I mean, I felt like I had glimpses of this this, uh, this week. My wife and I... Um, celebrated our adult children's birthdays uh, in Logan, Utah. And then she and I went and spent a few days in Yellowstone National Park. And, and, and just the experience of sharing that together and actually listening to different sessions from Jack's book together and spending time in nature and being together, um, I would express to her that 
that the, I would say this moment that we're sharing, to me, it makes it feel like life is all worth it. Like if my life ended tomorrow, today mm. would have made my life worthwhile mm. with this time and this experience of spending it together with you. Yeah. Wow. Britt, welcome back. Um, not sure what happened there, but you were talking about uh, Jack, you, you were mentioning how Jack was talking about the bike and, on energy, and we kind of moved on to joy, but I want to give you a chance to finish up that thought. Um, do you remember offhand where you were going with that? Yeah, I apologize. And this is so funny because, so my power went out um, unexpectedly, and so my router went out. And so here I am, you know, talking about being present in mindfulness, and I'm like hitting my router, <laughs> trying to get it to work. So I'm going to pull myself back into this moment because I am not perfect and electronics sometimes brings anger into my body. <laughs> but what I was saying before was, um, uh, yeah, to just remove the perfectionism from it. I love this idea that wise effort does not mean go, go, go all the time or that it has to be perfect all the time. It's, it's just like when you're riding a bike where you're pushing and pulling yourself into balance. And so it's intentionally saying, I need a day of rest and I really need to tend this, to this relationship and I really need to check in with myself because I'm not acting from my heart space or whatever it is. And it's just that effort to say, what am I needing now in this moment to pull myself into balance? <clears throat> so that's where I was going with that. But as far as the the joy in life itself, the the thought I had with that is that often in pop psychology or religious traditions or kind of Instagram quotes, we see joy or gratitude sometimes used as a weapon where you're using it as a positive emotion to kind of push negative emotions down. And I see this particularly in women where um, you are just, instead of noticing that you're upset or dealing with the negative emotion, you say, I should be happy. I should be more grateful. And so you use kind of that joy as a, as a weapon to kind of push down negativity. And you see this with kind of this kind of be happy Instagram hashtag kind of um, kind of environment uh, where you're just trying to be happy all the time. And if you are trying to be happy all the time, that is one of the quickest ways to just really suffer and struggle and not be happy in your life. And so um, what changed for me, the shift for me is that um, when you allow things to come and when you're, when you're present and you're doing this kind of wise effort, mindful awareness, that joy will naturally come. And so it'll just be quick. It'll just be a moment where a child says, I love you. And if I'm present in that moment, the joy in my heart is so full. It's like what Anthony said, where you could die in the next moment and you'd be like, wow, I really, I experienced joy in my life, but if I wasn't paying attention, I could have missed it. And it's not something where if I'm feeling a negative emotion, I try to say to myself, you should be happy. You should be happy and try to push it down. It just comes and it goes like every other emotion in your life. Sadness will come and go and anger will come and go. And if you're noticing joy will come and go a lot more also. And so just to recognize, um, that you don't have to force it, that it comes on its own when you're paying attention. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, the next one here, relaxation or tranquility. Um, I don't know what term Jack gave this one. I don't remember offhand if he, if he pointed at one of these two words. But this idea of maybe being calm or kind of sitting with things as they happen rather than quickly reacting. Again, yeah. giving kind of that brief moment for for the moment to kind of see what's going on and to respond to it. 
Yeah, I I think he uh, refers to a quiet a quietness of mind or tranquility. Really, what was coming to my to my thoughts as I was listening to that part of the session was uh, the practice of learning to respond to things instead of to react to them. And so, um, to 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 develop a, a practice of responding rather than reacting and being able to sit with something and and quietly and with curiosity ponder something before responding to something uh, is, uh, I would say, a factor of awakening or enlightenment and tranquility. Um, there, there's just sometimes, there, there's a few sayings, uh, like there's one saying that it's best to eat crow when it's warm. So when you've screwed up, like acknowledge it and, you know, apologize for it. And the the longer you wait to do that, the colder it is. Uh, so eat crow when it's warm. But there's another idea that is if, if something really bothers you, uh, you know, something that happened or something that somebody else said or something that they sent you in an email or an exchange at work or with a family member on social media or something like that. It, it's really helpful if you're really coming from an emotionally charged place to actually sit with it. You can write about it to process it, but maybe give it a day or two. The, the more disturbing it is, the more time you want to give to that thing before you actually give a response to that person. And, and and that's an example, I would say, of this tranquility uh, or calmness of mind in, in how we engage with other people and with things that might uh, disturb us. Yeah, I'll tell you that my responses to people in conversation or a text message are, when I'm doing this, when I'm living this trait, they're they're more sensitive to the complexity of another person's situation. They they have less blind spots to them when I'm responding to someone. Um, I come in less trying to um, get back in good standing myself and am more aware of the long term consequences of this engagement, so as not to hurt someone's feelings, so as to cause distance. Uh, this sense of tranquility or or calmness, it becomes, I think, a deep gift or skill compared to my earlier self that allows me to come in and really have a a real natural wisdom to how I interact with the world, at least in comparison to who I was five or 10 years ago. And so I tend now to come into situations and give what others would go, hey, that was the healthy response. That was the really healthy way to address whatever it was this other person said or did. As so not to just score points, but to make, um, like, again, it goes back to these earlier conversations, this kind of idea of right action. Like, I want to show up in the world and not just be an advocate for justice and not just be an advocate for truth, but do it in such a way that I'm showing up in the world healthy. And again, you guys see me fail at it too. Um, but there is a difference when you have this tranquility with you. Anything else there? I just like this idea of being in the eye of a storm. Um, I'm currently a mother with young children. And so when you have young children, it literally is a hurricane that's happening around your body all the time and screaming and fighting and yelling and this kind of thing. And, um, Sometimes, you know, when you think of meditation or you think of calmness, you think of the men who sit in caves 
And there's patriarchy in Buddhism too. You know, they sit in caves <laughs> and there's some right now. And um, I just love this idea that, you, you know, you don't have to leave the world in order to experience this. It's just that breath in the middle of the hurricane that gives you that space. Yeah. I, I read, again, I don't know if this came from Jack or if it was somewhere else in the prep, but I read tranquility comes with the confidence gained from the work put into earlier efforts. This idea that once you start putting this into practice and you start experiencing successes, um, you start to you start to pick up on those successes where you uh, where you're doing these things that we're talking about, and it builds. It's like um, like a snowball being ran down a hill. You start to feel the your capability increase. You start to feel your ability to do these things become greater. Um, any other thoughts there? Or else I'll move on to the next one. I also think that. Uh when you ever hang around with someone who has been a meditation practitioner for a long time, if you see their body language, if you hang out with someone like a Noah Rochetta who does secular Buddhism or Thomas McConkie who does mindfulness plus it's, you can see it in their body where they're talking. And if, if they need a few moments to think of an answer, they'll just take it and they won't have to fill, you know, the air with, with, with their words because it feels anxious to be silent. And you can start to sense these people around you that can maintain calm. And it's, you can begin to even see it in their body of just how they, how they walk through the world. And it's really beautiful to see when you have, if you have someone like that in your life to be able to watch how it really changes their, their body in, in how they're just walking around the world. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I would, I mentioned that, I mean, these aren't necessarily inherent traits for people. Like, they, people have to put in work and practice in order to do these things. And, and in this session, Jack talks about the value of just naming them can be helpful because then people are more aware of them. They're more conscious of these uh, factors. Um, but in the end, it requires putting in the work to... Uh, increase our capacity to have these factors be part of our being. Beautiful. All right. Two more. I think we've got one here. Concentration, a calm one pointed state of mind or clear awareness. Uh, the note I made is concentration is the ability to fully focus on the task at hand, blocking out distractions and overcoming fatigue. It's, it's this kind of laser focus, um, at what is in front of us rather than getting lost in other tasks that need to be done or other uh, things that, that maybe you'd like to put your mind on, but rather really putting your focus in this thing that you're doing. Uh, anything from you guys on, on focus or concentration here? He's, so he says it, it's a moment where the ego dissipates, where you're so focused on washing the dishes or you're so focused on um, – listening to the person in front of you that your ego just has no space to kind of claim it. Right. Because, and so there's a purity that comes from that level of focus. And I thought it was interesting that he used a Christian um, scripture here to describe it. He used the scripture of if your eye be single, your body will be full of light, which is this mystic principle that you find across, you know, all the traditions of there's something about focus that um, really just dissipates your ego where you're not listening to someone just so that you can think of something clever to say. If you're fully watching them and listening to them, your ego doesn't have time and space to, to do that. And you can 
um, have your body be full of light, as the scripture says. And so it, it's a principle that we see um, in Christianity, too, in this beautiful scripture. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah, there's a huge difference in concentrating and listening to seek to understand, as opposed to trying to figure out how to, to debate or argue with someone. And um, mm. whether you, your practice is um, as a, a parent or a friend, or whether it's as a financial advisor or some other, some sort of a salesperson or something, if you're operating where when you're in front of someone, the premise is the rest of the world stops and it's only about that person and your concentration is to seek to understand their experience and what they're sharing and and not to rebut it, not to respond to it, but just to seek to understand. That's going to be an entirely different experience for you as an individual, but it's going to be a different experience for the other person as well. Other people can tell whether you're listening to them to correct or to, to debate them versus seeking to understand their experience. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Anything else there on that one? Okay. So the last one I've got here is equanimity, uh, to accept reality as it is without craving or aversion. The, the note I made here, equanimity, the pinnacle or conclusion of the seven factors is not the same as tranquility. Instead, it refers to a balanced mind, one that is not swayed this way and that by desire and aversion, one that can weigh feelings with reason and exercise sound judgment. A mind in this state is ready to practice more advanced meditation or face the many challenges that arise in life. Equanimity is also one of the four immeasurables. Uh, Your thoughts on this uh, factor of enlightenment? For me, I love the idea of... The ocean. And once you kind of get going on this practice, you'll notice that instead of being at the surface where, you know, it's a sunny day and the waves are calm or it's a storm and the waves, you know, there's just always waves one after the other. And your thoughts are like that. Just one thought crash, one another thought crash. Sometimes it's a huge storm or a hurricane. And you're just kind of on the surface being thrown around by all this motion. And when you can dip into kind of your your core or your soul, or your Buddha nature, or your consciousness, whatever word you like to use for that space. It's, it's like dipping into the depths of the ocean where you can notice the waves on the surface, but um, you're not tossed around by them anymore. You're, you're scuba diving kind of in the deep where there's, where there's beautiful things and there's life and there's animals and there's things to explore, but you're not, um, you're not thrown around by the waves anymore. And that's that, that subtle difference, um, that, that shift that you have in your life where you'll start to notice like, Oh, I'm just more at peace. I'm more have a, I have some steadiness and I just feel less tossed around by other people's emotions, other people's thoughts and feelings, whatever's going on in my world. Um, that's, that's the kind of treasure that this shift in life will give you just that kind of sense of steadiness. Yeah, to to accept reality as it is without craving or aversion. He tells a story of a hospital where people are treated for all range of very difficult or painful, life-threatening kinds of things. And um, a, a group or an individual that I guess maybe they, they were located in the basement of the hospital or something like that, that said... Um, 
after you're done with people or if you can't do any more for people, send them to us. And and what they did is they focused on this. They focused on helping people sit with the present to accept reality as it is without craving or aversion. And, and uh, they made a huge difference in the experience of the patients uh, with that kind of approach to things. So again, I, I love this idea as one of the seven factors of enlightenment or awakening because... Um, another thing that I got from the strategic coach, and I don't know whether the guy that created strategic coach came up with this, but he said something like to the extent that all progress starts with telling the truth. And um, I would say that part of that is by accepting what the truth is without craving or aversion, uh, and then moving forward from that. Just in the last uh, few weeks, I have become a UFC fighting fan. I've, I've watched numerous i went on and did a google first off i saw one really good fight and it hooked me and i was able to see the the skill in that person who is checking out the tendencies of his opponent he's trying to be random enough that they can't pick up on his tendencies both fighters are trying to see a pattern and so i ended up googling like the 50 best ufc fights and just kind of watching them one by one and i'm i'm kind of 15 or 20 into the list and then I also watched Conor McGregor, who's just like, he's the, the pinnacle of UFC fighters. He fights um, Floyd Mayweather, who is the pinnacle of boxing. And the two of them fight in a 12-round boxing match. And Conor McGregor, who's a UFC fighter, goes 10 rounds with, this, with, with the best of the best. And these two guys are careful of each other. They don't want to go in too aggressive because then the other guy is going to hit him with a counterpunch. They don't want to be too lackadaisical either. Like you got to kind of stay on your toes. And I remember somebody once telling, and maybe it was Thomas McConkie, but somebody said something like, you want to have a, a hard back and a soft front. You want to be, you want to have your ground. You want to, you want to stand that ground to some degree. And you want to be soft on the front side of you that you aren't harsh with people, that you're not constantly just being stern with others. And as I'm watching all these UFC fights, I'm, I'm realizing this ability to absorb the punches, to be in movement with them, to kind of not be so aggressive that you lean into a, a hard punch, not being so uh, defensive that you're standing on your leaning back and hence you have no strength behind any of your, your attack. It's, it's really kind of going with the flow. And in this last one, this last factor of enlightenment kind of tells me that I need to be I need to be moldable. I need I need to be in a moment ready to take whatever comes up that I wasn't ready for. Like there's going to be things said and done. There's going to be tragedy. There's going to be exciting moments. And you're not going to be prepared when those things happen. And if you can be uh, less firm, less uh, rigid, and be able to adapt and mold to the situation in front of you, that's what this last one kind of speaks to me about. Any thoughts here before we kind of close out? This... This one was trickier for me um, in terms of really being specific and and wise on any one of these things. The, the, the previous two, and I think the ones in front of us, were easier for me. I think I think what concluded this one for me was at the end. He says, um, you know, he he talks about what it's like to live from a place of equanimity, and then at the end, he says, even when death comes, you are ready to welcome death as a friend. And that's you know, as we're talking about this path. That's where this path is going, that you 
are so present in your life that you do what you want with it. You love how you want, you act how you want, you don't resist it. You get to feel the full spectrum of human emotion. You get to experience the full spectrum of human experience so that when it's over and you're at the end, you can say, wow, that was a wild ride and really be at peace with, with facing mortality. And, and I think we've all seen as we're getting older, maybe our parents have passed or are kind of on the tail end of their lives, that there's a huge difference between people who say, gosh, I would have done my whole life different. I never really lived, you know, and being at peace in that moment and just saying, that was a great wild ride. And I got to experience a full life. And that's where this particular path is going is, is being able to face your own mortality that we don't like to think about that our brain tries to shield us from, but actually walking towards that with some awareness and with some intention, knowing that this is where it's going and this is how I want to feel at the end of it. And so um, to me, I've always, that's, that's the reason I got into philosophy is I, wa- I could read about the lives of philosophers and they just had this sense where they were walking towards death without fear. And I just was always at a young age, I was fascinated by that. How do they do that? How do they just be at peace with the fact that they're, they're dying and they don't know what's going to happen next? And um, now when I, when I see that when you live from a place of um, authenticity and intention with what you want to do with your life and you're fully present in your life, that you can be grateful, um, you can be grateful for it until the very end and, and be in p- at peace in that moment when it ends for all of us. Mm, mm, yeah. I'm, I can, I can tell as you were talking about that, the anxiety in me rose. So I know I'm not there yet. I'm still, I'm still very fearful of that those last moments. So hopefully they're still another 40 or 50 years away, but um, I doubt it. So, so this is like, you, and I think you're right, Brett, you hit on this thing, which is, this is the pinnacle of the lesson that this Eastern thought is taking you to is to get so comfortable being present that you actually are able to be present with your own passing, right? Like that's kind of that climactic moment that is ahead for all of us. Um, If we're lucky, it will be instantaneous and we won't even know that it happened. Um, For many of us, there will be at least seconds, if not minutes and hours or days and weeks of contemplating our death as it's, beginning to occur. So thank you. Appreciate that thought. Anthony, anything, any last thoughts from you before we close? Yeah, those key words, uh, craving, aversion, uh, I would say relate to grasping. That yeah. The principle is that those are the sources of suffering. So being able to accept reality as it is without craving, aversion, or grasping really is the freedom of not having to, to experience suffering. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, both of you, uh, for sitting down and us going through this third session. I'm excited for the the rest of this. And so we'll pick up next week with number four. Uh, appreciate both of you being on. Hopefully, Jana can join us next time. Glad you're back on with us, Britt. Uh, appreciate the things that both of you guys add to these conversations. Um, anything last thing, any last words before we before we close it out? I'm just really enjoying this. Thank you Perfect. for inviting me into this conversation. Yeah, this this book, these presentations, these sessions were in, to some degree life-changing for me. And I am I now see myself doing this work now every day where the days were just kind of passing in front of me and I wasn't. Now I am, and it's making a world of difference. Uh, and I think it's important to point out to the listeners, like you're going to probably fail at this 
significant exponentially more times than you succeed at it, but you start to feel these successes, you start to be aware of them and they happen with more and more regularity. And so you can see the progress happening in real time. Cool. All right, guys, thank you so much. Go back to your second Saturday and have a lot of fun. Thanks, Bill. Take it easy. <laughs>